Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, and welcome to the Karma You podcast. This is your host, Chloe Brotheridge. I'm a coach, a hypnotherapist, and I'm the author of The Anxiety Solution and Brave New Girl. And this podcast is all about helping you to become your calmest, happiest, and most confident self. Hello, hello, hello. Thanks for joining me today. I am joined by Dr. Grace Lorden today on the podcast. She's the author of Think Big. And basically, the book is all about the power of medium-term goals. And one of the things we talk about in this episode is how very often we underestimate what we can do over the long to medium term. And we overestimate what we can do in a day. And then we beat ourselves up because we don't get everything done on our to-do list on a particular day. And so I love this episode for a real shift in perspective to help you to set those medium term goals and start to live the sort of life that you want to. And Dr. Grace is very much a researcher. She's a lecturer. Dr. Grace is a associate professor in behavioral science at LSE. And I love that she shares a lot about the science behind behavior change and setting goals and things like procrastination and motivation. And so there's tons of this episode that I think you're going to find super interesting. We talk about how to keep focused when you're an easily distracted procrastinator who Grace admits to being. We talk about why our personal narratives are so important. So your personal narrative is how you speak to yourself. And she shares about how we can start to change this and empower ourselves more. We talk about top cognitive biases that are holding you back at work and these are pretty surprising, actually. These biases are things that we all have as humans that are just running in the background and causing us to perceive things, you know, in incorrect ways. And if we can be aware of them, we can stop them from tripping us up. And she also shares the 90-minute weekly commitment that could be a game changer for you. So if you haven't already, I want to invite you to come over to my website, Karma hyphen you.com. And I've got loads of freebies on there for you to support you in feeling calmer, happier, more confident. If you head on over there, enter your email address. I've got a free confidence affirmations MP3 to change your self-talk so that it's more empowering and loving. And I've got a free anxiety toolkit for you to download with tons of resources for calming anxiety. So head over to karma hyphen you.com 
grab those freebies. So let's get into the interview with Dr. Grace Lorden. Welcome, Grace. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing? I'm good. Thank you, Chloe, for having me on. I'm really excited to be here. So the question that I always ask people first is, can you share a little bit about what it is that you do and and how you got to where you are today? Yes. So I my, my title at the moment is Associate Professor in Behavioural Science at the LSE, and I'm also the Director of the Inclusion Initiative. Um, and essentially, I am a behavioural scientist, and I research into what determines why people behave in the way that they do. But for me, what I'm mostly interested in is what we call the intent action gap. So why is it that people say they want to do one thing and even though they really, really want to do it, don't necessarily execute it? And helping people actually put structures in place to make sure that they are more likely to do something. I think you've just, what you said there about people kind of knowing what they should do but not being able to actually do it. I think that that's like one of the biggest problems that we have as humans, I think. If we could get over that, our lives would be very different. It's a massive, massive thing. It's, I mean, I think it's really hard for people in the sense that very often the things that we actually commit to doing are outside of our comfort zone. And as human beings, we, we tend to feel much better inside our comfort zone in, in, in particular moments. So then if you're not having a particularly good day, getting yourself to a place where you're putting yourself outside your comfort zone and moving towards something that you've committed to is actually quite difficult. And again, I think behavioral science just has some insights that make that process um, much easier. And also, I think when we're thinking about kind self-reflection also gives explanations as to why that might actually manifest in the way that it does. So you've got a new book out, it's called Think Big. Can you share a little bit about what it's about and why did you write this book? Yes, I mean, I, I give a lot of talks to corporate companies and I'm a behavioral scientist and there are very few women who are behavioral scientists, actually. So I used to be asked by companies to come and give talks on behavior and how it matters in firms and in particular to do with the gender pay gap. So, you know, if you met me about 10 years ago, you might have actually heard me talk about the gender pay gap and how men and women and how they act differently inside the companies and how that manifests in the gender pay gap. And I would give these talks and people would say, you know, that's all very well, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm not empowering this organization. I can't change the policies. And, and that happens actually when you give talks like I do, because very often the audience tend to be younger and they're starting out in their career um, who, who come along. And I really wanted to write something from that perspective. So let's imagine that I am somebody who doesn't have lots of resources, who isn't in charge of an organization that can change major policies what can I actually do to empower myself and take ownership of my own future and make sure that I actually build it in the way that I want? And again, you know, if I kind of think of the motivation, the number of people who I met who've had bad managers, who've had bad experiences with a couple of people who've actually held them back, who haven't been able to kind of get their startup off the ground for reasons that weren't necessarily to do with themselves on the surface. It really felt like a toolkit that would give the behavioural insights in a very easy to read way. I hope, I hope I've succeeded in that. Would be quite valuable for people. Yeah, amazing. And is it that if we were to sort of summarise a part of it, I think you talk a lot about how we kind of, you're going to explain it better, but we underestimate what we can do over a long period of time and we overestimate what we can do in a short period of time. Or is it the other way around? Can you, can you clarify? Yeah, it, 
it's looking, I mean, I always get people to look backwards and look forwards. So if we just take the short period of time, we tend to overestimate what we can do. So, you know, how many people kind of said this week, this is what I, you know, has a to-do list of five things that they need to do for work and they're carrying over to the following week. And there's a lot of focus on the planning fallacy, which is the name for it in behavioral science, that we tend to be very overly optimistic when we commit to do things on a day-to-day basis. But what's more fascinating to me is if you give people an exercise where you ask them to look back a number of years, so say five years, and write down everything about their lives that actually changed in that period of time. And then you ask them to look forward five years and say, what do you think is going to happen? Or or what, what do you think is going to change over the next five years? The future list is always much shorter than the past list. And, you know, I've done this at the LSC where I've met people who are studying for executive master's where I get one half of the room to look at the past and one half of the room to look at the future. And the people who are looking forward really come up with very, very little that's going to change because we don't imagine ourselves actually evolving in the way that we typically do as humans. So then if you can imagine, given we know that to be true, what would happen if you aimed for something over the medium term? What would happen if you kind of said, this is the type of thing or this is the type of person that I want to be, you know, in three and four years time? And rather than really changing your life to get there today, just did very small things every week. So I think in the book, I talk about 90 minutes. So just committing to these 90 minutes every week and watching them accumulate and compounding over the years. Yeah, because I think we we can really beat ourselves up, I think, can't we? If we have a goal to create a new habit or make a change or set up a business and we say, right, in the next six months, I want to be doing this, setting up this business. If we don't manage to get there, we might beat ourselves up or feel like a failure. But actually, we should be thinking more in the medium term. So in terms of, of years in the future, rather than just months. And I think what you brought up is is exactly the motivation. So the kind of narratives that we tell ourselves is really what we become. So if I am trying to do something today and I bite off way more than I can chew, I'm trying to change Grace 180 degrees to be a radically different person. As appealing as that might be to me, the chances of my succeeding are very, very low because it's not normal for us as humans to change that much in such a quick period of time. But then when I don't manage to change, I have this narrative that I failed, like you just described, which goes around in my head. Why would I bother trying that again? I failed. Why would I bother doing that? That I failed. And those narratives, those stories really have such power to keep us stuck. You know, it's kind of if, if we think about conversations that we have with our friends, sometimes we're much kinder to our friends than we are. We are to ourselves. And the failure as well, you know, in Think Big, I really try to recast people and how they think about failure. So instead of focusing on something as a failure, something as a success, to really focus on the process and to really reflect on if things didn't go well, why didn't it actually go well in that moment? Because again, there's so much that we can actually control and some things are outside of our control and the process is something that we can actually control ourselves. So just by showing up for that will keep us essentially persevering on the journey. And I know that you've got a whole section on kind of our narratives and changing our narratives in the book and how important that is. You know, the story that we tell ourselves about what's happening could mean that we can persevere or we can give up or we'll feel good about ourselves or bad about ourselves. It's, it's, yeah, it sounds like it's really, really important. You mentioned there about the planning fallacy, was it? Yes. And um, just to quote something from the book, you write, cognitive biases are often the reason why our ideas falter and careers stall. And you talk about five biases that hold us back. So is the planning fallacy, is that a, is that a bias then that 
that holds us back or is that something else? Yeah. So, I mean, the planning fallacy is the tendency when we're trying to decide how much time something will take. As human beings, we tend to be overly optimistic and more than likely we would have a bet that it will work out perfectly so that there's going to be nothing is going to go wrong. We're not going to get distracted. The children aren't going to knock at the door. You know, there isn't going to be something that's going to pull me out of the room. In contrast, and and this is true, by the way, for governments who do big projects, for managers who put times on things inside in large companies, who've done it over and over again. There's something about us that we just tend to be overly optimistic, particularly when it's our own idea, when our ego, when our ego is actually tied up in it. And again, if you tie that to narratives, if you can imagine that you overly commit to something and you say it's going to take you a week, and if you don't manage to do it in the week, you'll start thinking of yourself, okay, I'm not good enough. Okay, I don't have time for this. You know, okay, this isn't going to fit in with my life right now. I may as well give up. And again, those stories are enough to kind of convince you to quit what you're actually doing, even if you are actually on the right path. And, you know, in the book, I talk about the fact that if you want to rule a thumb for the planning fallacy, if you're trying to organize something today and, and it's something that you haven't done before, multiply the time that you've allocated by 1.5 times. That's kind of a good rule of thumb. But monitor yourself as an individual. So me, my planning fallacy is much worse than the average person. I have to double my time when I'm actually planning something and I'm doing something new because I'm somebody who gets distracted a lot. And, you know, some of your listeners might be actually better than the average person. So they'll figure out that their rule of thumb ends up being 1.2. But again, knowing that about yourself, that when you're taking on something that's actually new to you, how overly optimistic you might be about what you can actually achieve in a period of time to make sure that you actually achieve it and that you're also kind to yourself, that you're not overly committing to something and you're allowing yourself to kind of sustain a work-life balance. I was just kind of laughing to myself internally for a moment there because I was thinking about my boyfriend. We moved house recently and put all our stuff in storage and he thought it was going to take a day and I said it's going to take two weeks and it ended up (laughs) taking about two weeks and four full days of moving and moving boxes and so I think I need to scale his up by about 10 or something like that. So. You were so accurate, though. That's really impressive. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think I might be the opposite sometimes. I, I quite often think things are going to take longer, and then they don't take as long. Are there people that kind of have it the other the other way around? Like they're most pessimistic are- about how long things are going to take. There are. And again, I think for you, if, if you do the scaling, you realize that about yourself, although it sounds like you already know. And then that means that if you're thinking about a new opportunity, if, if you're so inclined to overestimate the time, you won't have this narrative, I don't have time for that unnecessarily, which again is something that actually stops us doing things. You know, and, you know, if I'm kind of to think about the people who I, I speak to, I would think that's the most prominent narrative that's all, all, all kind of given as an excuse. I don't I don't have time for that. And again, in your case, actually knowing that you're really good at estimating the time and you might actually have time to spare can be quite comforting. Yeah, yeah. I also I was remembering a, a coach of mine saying that I think he said something like four out of every five things he tries in his business fails or goes yeah. wrong or doesn't turn out how, how he thinks it's going to go. And yet we so often think, as, as, as you say, as the, the planning fallacy, you know, says that things are just going to go smoothly and go fine. And actually it's normal for things to go wrong and for things to take longer and for uh, things to not turn out exactly as we, we think. It doesn't mean that we're a failure or we're not doing, we're not good enough or anything like that. 
And I think the labeling as well, you know, kind of moving away from this was a failure, this was a success to thinking, oh, I've passed a milestone. Let's reflect on what went right and what went wrong. Because even if I succeed, there's probably things that maybe I could have done better. And even if I fail, there's things that I've done great. And sometimes failure will just be outside, you know, your own control. You'll come up against people in the world, you know, who, who don't see how talented you are. You'll come up against obstacles that you don't, you can't just navigate around. And I think that post-mortem really brings learning into failure uh, and also allows you kind of get back on the horse again. And, you know, I talk a lot about the idea of anticipation in Think Big. And when we anticipate something happening, particularly failure, the anticipation is an experience in itself. So I live through it just like I'm living through the failure to the extent it can be enough to stop me actually putting myself forward. But when I'm doing that, as human beings, we tend to underestimate how easily we will actually adapt to failure because we do bounce back to a lot of things. You know, again, if you're listening, think about how resilient they've been to things that have actually faced them. So if you're somebody who kind of ruminates before putting yourself forward and has action bias, really trying to figure out, is it something about you anticipating the failure? Is it something that you kind of overestimate the label of failure? You overestimate how you'll actually feel, how negative you'll actually feel and kind of going through that process and seeing it as a learning experience rather than something that's actually kind of you know the kind of final the final chance because there always are these kind of other doors that we can kind of go through in life if one thing doesn't work out and putting yourself forward makes you much more likely to find those other doors yeah it's that saying isn't it failure isn't final we think it's like this terminal place we're always going to be a failure or something when we're when we're kind of staring it in the face but actually we do adapt and find a way through and and overcome it are there any other biases that you think are really or are the most significant ones that, that people might be experiencing? So one of the most interesting things that I've found from kind of working with people who are trying to move ahead in their careers is who they take advice from. So, you know, typically um, if, if you're looking to kind of, you know, in any in any area of life, but particularly in careers, one of the kind of steadfast pieces of advice that has been there since the 50s, 60s, 70s, even today, is that we should have a number of people who we go and we ask for advice when something happens. But I ask people then to kind of think about who you're going for advice. Think about their demographics. What's their age? What's their gender? What's their occupation? What's the, their life experience? And to really reflect on, are they very like each other? And are they very like you? Because it often happens as humans, we like to we like to feel comfortable in our own skin, you know, when we're, when, when we're relaxing. And that spills over into the work environment that we search for people very like ourselves to give us advice. And the problem with that is kind of twofold. So firstly, you're much more likely to get stuck in what we call confirmation bias, which is if I hold a belief, the people who I'm asking about because they're like me are likely to kind of give me confirming evidence for that belief. So, you know, if I believe that I just don't have enough time to do something, if I'm going to people who are very, very like me for advice, they're probably likely to back me up. And the second is, you know, the more similar to you your group are, the less opportunities you actually have have in life. So the less doors that will actually open out for you. So, you know, one thing that I kind of encourage people to think big to think about is to think about expanding their network. So it's more diverse. And also to kind of think about developing what we call kind of weak ties as well as strong ties. Because again, usually when we think to you about who do we go for for advice, we imagine these people were really close to, we speak to every week, possibly even every day. But, you know, a lot of the evidence suggests that people who tend to move forward a bit faster than others actually have this network of people 
or quite far away from them. But if they need them, they can pick up the phone. And making an effort to actually develop that kind of network again is something that can really help you move forward on occasions where you think that you're actually stuck. So, so interesting. I wonder as well if on our kind of our network is shrinking with the polarization of things. I think probably a lot of people have lost friends in the last few years. Maybe yeah. they vote differently or they have different views on certain topics. And actually maybe we're, yeah, our worlds are getting smaller in that way. And that could be a problem because we're not going to be getting well-rounded advice or be able to see things from different perspectives. And I think as well, you know, I, the way that the world has kind of shifted is, as, as you say, we have kind of some, some things are on the left and things are on the right and there's nothing in between. And most of the things that we have to do in life won't be polarised. They won't be yes, they won't be no. There's kind of this moderate, moderate response. And again, I think making sure that you have a diverse set of people around you who you can ask for advice on those occasions is really, really valuable. You know, and it's really good for sense checks. And I kind of say in the book, you know, feedback isn't a democracy. So if you do hear something from one of the people in your group who you don't like, or it doesn't feel like you, it doesn't necessarily mean that you need to take it on. And I think separating that is really important. You know, when I am making a big decision, I like to get very different types of feedback and I listen to that feedback in a way that's active and really respectful of the people who's actually giving it to me. It doesn't necessarily mean that I'm always going to take their feedback and take their advice in the moment, but I've definitely listened to it and it's definitely entered my decision-making process. Um, and kind of, if you think if you think the same with them, if you have groups of people who are on kind of the left and the right of particular issues, again, listening to people and trying to see their point of view can be actually enough to keep us talking to folk who, who we might otherwise dismiss. Yeah, so interesting. You you have uh, self-identified as an easily distracted procrastinator. And I think lots of us can probably relate to that. How do you how do you deal with that? How do you kind of manage that or or stop that from from stopping you or holding you back? It's a really difficult one because I think if you write about if you write about procrastination, people always assume that you have it sewn up. It's like a rod for your own back that you that you've even managed to fix yourself. So I like to say that I procrastinate a lot rather than say that I'm a procrastinator because then the behavior sits outside myself. And I think the answer to that really is, you know, day by day. I am somebody who's just distracted. I've learned to love it about myself because it also means that I'm very curious and that I'm very creative. And so so there's lots of good parts that come with it. But when it comes to getting things done, it is something that I actually have to kind of curtail and make sure that I I show up on time. And in the book, I talk about kind of different things that you can actually do. And, And, you know, there's kind of three things that are working for me at the moment. So the first is, you know, a lot of the activities that I have to do on a day-to-day basis, the payoff is in the future. So for example, when I was writing the book that that um, ho- hopefully some of your listeners will read, I wasn't thinking about enjoying a conversation with you today because it was so far off in the future, I couldn't really imagine it. There was just this kind of showing up for the writing, the writing sessions, which gets quite tedious when you enter the editing phase and really you're kind of changing around sentences rather than, rather than being creative. So I would bundle things that I really liked with those activities. And I would essentially say, you know, once you work, you know, hard from eight to 12, then you can have a massage at 12 o'clock and then you can have a lunch afterwards and you can relax for the rest of the day and do whatever else you like. And that bundling of things that actually has immediate benefits for me in the present day with things that are quite tedious allows me to show up. The second thing is meaning. So really connecting what I'm doing today even if it feels like a routine task, even if it feels like something that, you know, that, 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 that's really, really difficult 
to meaning in the future. And again, that brings its value into the present day. So I continue to show up for it. And the third thing that I do is I leverage what's known as the compromise effect. Most people, when they write to-do lists, will write down, I need to do one thing on a particular day, and then they'll look to cross it off. Whereas I have three different levels of output that I will put down. So one is low, one is medium, and one is high. And I don't know if it's because I'm a pretty average person, but very often I end up hitting the medium output pretty, pretty well. And this really aligns up with a lot of research and marketing to suggest that if I'm choosing between options that are presented to me by somebody when I'm buying, I'll very often pick the medium option. So if you can imagine your psychology in the morning when you're starting, when you really don't want to start, there's something about our ego that will ensure that we won't just stop at the low output usually. So we'll, we'll, we'll manage to get through the low output and probably hit the medium output. But equally, because our ego is trying to compromise with other things that we might have, we might necessarily go on and fulfill the high output. So I think for people who are struggling with productivity, really thinking about how can I break down what I need to do into low effort, medium effort and high effort. And then on your to-do list, even if what you manage to do is the low, give yourself a tick on the to-do list. And then again, that kind of reprograms your narrative to say, yes, I showed up for myself today. I did my task. And then tomorrow, if you're still hitting the low, give yourself a tick. If you hit the medium, give yourself a tick. And counting them all equally means that we move away from these kind of, which is really harmful for us, actually, this either yes or no, something is completed or it's not towards something that's much more human and kind of takes into account what our mojo might be like on a particular day and the effort that we might actually feel like putting in. So what might that look in practice? So if you're writing a book, it might be the low output will be writing 500 words, medium 1,000, you know, high 2,000 or something like that, or having different tasks on different lists about amounts to get to get done. Absolutely. And, you know, and, and the other the other way to think about it as well is there there will be tasks like reference checking, for example, making sure that everyone's names is, is written down correctly. That is low effort in the sense that even if you're not feeling like getting really into deep work, it's a, it's a task that you can actually do, you know, when pretty much when you're on when you're on autopilot and the high effort could be doing something that's actually really creative or restructuring an entire chapter where a couple of sections aren't necessarily working in the way that you want them to work with. So depending on yourself, you can divide that up how you like. But I think the idea behind the low effort is, you know, if there's a particular day where uh, for, for me, if I'm just very, very distracted, it means that I'm still accomplishing something and I'm moving towards the goal. And it's really in the spirit of these small steps that I talk about so much and think big, that every day doesn't have to be a day that we knock it out of the park. It's much more important that every day we're doing these small things that are building towards this goal in the future. I love that idea of like categorizing what are the kind of the easy the easy tasks I can save those days where I'm just not really feeling very productive and just do it on those days and tick it off and don't don't make ourselves wrong for for doing that knowing that we're human and it's normal to have ups and downs in our energy and our mojo as you say um yeah I love that you mentioned just earlier about the 90 minute weekly commitment um can you what 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 do you mean by that can you share a bit more about about that yeah so I mean so in in the the whole idea behind Think Big Firstly is that people don't have to really kind of yank their lives apart that the journey can actually fit in with what you're doing already and one of the first things that I ask people to do is to identify what I call time sinkers and I kind of like to divide how I spend my time into three different types so there's the activities that I will actually add value to me and other people 
either now or in the future that I have to do today. There's the activities that will give me immediate pleasure now, but they won't give me anything in the future. So that could be, you know, watching a Netflix show, which I like to do when, 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 I'm, when I'm relaxing. Or it could be things that you're doing that actually aren't adding any value to yourself or to other people. So, you know, I think unfortunately for today with social media, with information overload, we've ended up kind of being in a place where we can feel very, very busy, even though the activities that we're actually doing aren't necessarily helping us. They're not making us feel good and they're not adding any value to us. And I ask people to kind of take 90 minutes from these activities that give you instant gratification. So keep watching Netflix, just a small bit less if you're somebody like me who enjoys watching box sets. And the second is for these things that are actually busy work that aren't adding any value to you or others, again, to take some time. And then with those 90 minutes, taking the small steps that you will have identified that would allow you build the future that you actually want. And these small steps are really linked to getting you experience in the activities that you need to do to have a job like what you want in the future. And also it's about honing the skills that you would need to be the person who you want to be in the future. So, you know, for some jobs, you will have to have particular skills that are kind of laid down as professional qualifications. But there's hundreds of jobs actually where all you need to do is home skills on your own time, where you don't need to go to university. All you need to do is kind of hone experience on your own time, where you don't need to kind of work officially in a particular company. And that's really what I want people to spend the 90 minutes at. So for some people, it will be practicing public speaking. For others, it will be networking more. For more still, it will actually be kind of continuous learning and honing a new skill through. I mean, you know, one of the silver linings from COVID is that we've managed to democratize a lot of skills online now. So it's very easy to go online for free, actually, and learn things that we couldn't have learned before COVID began. But again, it's really about figuring out how those 90 minutes will actually work for you. I love that. And it feels very manageable. 90 minutes seems like something we could all do. We can all do that. It does. And it's, and it's, sorry to interrupt you, Chloe, but it's just enough time as well to get what I call flow. So where you really get immersed in an activity. So if you're somebody who's nervous about networking, you might go to an event and say, I'm only going to spend 90 minutes here. I'm going to meet some people, but you might really start enjoying yourself. So you spend, you know, two hours, you spend two and a half hours. The same when you're learning a new skill. If something is really hard, you know, persevering in it for 90 minutes is really manageable on a weekly basis. But once it starts getting easier for you, there will be nights where you might spend more time. And again, it's really about just making sure that you're showing up for that minimum small step and seeing where it goes. Yeah, sounds so, so good. I wanted to ask you about resilience. I think resilience is so important for so many of our sort of mental health things. I think resilience can be at the root of us not us feeling anxious because we don't have that resilience very often. I know that's the case or that's been the case for me. Can you share, you know, from your from your perspective, are there things that we can do to to boost our resilience? It's a great question. So, you know, in Think Big, I have a, a chapter on resilience. And I kind of say very early on, this isn't the resilience for, you know, if you suffer a major tragedy, if you suffer bereavement, if you're going through a divorce, these kind of major structural life changes. I think there's much better books out there on that. What I try to do in Think Big is really talk about 
the everyday punches that we might actually have to go through. So, you know, this can be very, very small from thinking about what happens if you're in a meeting and somebody talks over you. What happens if you're in a meeting and somebody really dislikes your idea and almost shuts you down? What happens if you're pitching, if you're in a startup and you're told no, and somebody just says, look, we don't want to hear it and we don't want to hear anymore. Or what if you fail at something that really feels like it's pivotal for the journey? And I think the first thing that I get people to do are these exercises to figure out how resilient are you with respect to rolling with everyday punches? And then that acts as a monitoring exercise for when you apply the behavioral insights that I suggest. And, you know, one of the, the things that I really stress and think big, and this is true for any book that you actually pick up, I think when it comes to life, there's no silver bullet that anyone can say to you, this is what's going to work for you. But what we can do and what I do in in, in the book is give you the things that have actually worked for other people and encourage you to apply them to yourself and see whether or not they actually work. And I think when it comes to resilience, you know, one of the biggest problems for our, I talk about two things, the idea of honing resilience, so making yourself more resilient, but also kind of making sure that you don't allow things that, that you can brush off yourself deplete your resilience resources that you actually have. And I think the latter we let happen too easily these days. You know, we let people actually affect us. We let circumstances affect us possibly more than they actually should. And in the book, I, you know, I, I, I talk about the idea that let's imagine that you're walking along the corridor and somebody who you know quite well is quite rude to you all of a sudden. How does that actually make you feel in that particular moment? And really questioning the reaction that you might actually have to moments that are kind of like those, these kind of encounters that we have with people and asking yourself, if I told you, if I told you that that person who was walking past you was having a really bad day, they just learned that somebody in their family had a terminal illness, or they just learned that they'd lost a lot of money that meant that they couldn't actually pay their mortgage this month. Most people, even though that person was grumpy, because they could ascribe the circumstances to that person, they would let, let, let it brush off themselves. They would kind of, they would let it wash away. But without that, we tend to hold on to it and we might talk about it later on and it makes us a little bit grumpy. We see this with emails as well when people send um, individuals emails that it, there are these re- reactions that really kind of stick with the person and getting people to question what happens when we react that way is really, really important because we're not hurting the, when I get annoyed and when I get grumpy, I'm not hurting the person who's giving me the, uh, who, who's giving me the cold shoulder, who, who has been grumpy with me. When I'm reacting very negatively to an email that I've received, the person who sent it isn't feeling the pain that I'm feeling in that particular moment. And a lot of this is ascribed to what we call in behavioral science, the fundamental attribution error, that when something happens to us and there's another person on the end of it, we tend to blame the individual instead of the circumstances that they're in, even though we don't necessarily know the circumstances. And for me, why that's really interesting is because very often the person who that hurts is is me myself. So there's kind of two things that I ask people to do. So firstly, bear in mind the fundamental attribution error when something happens. And this in no way is, is suggesting to listeners that they should start allowing themselves to be treated badly. If it's repeated, if the person is repeatedly, you know, doing negative things, it should be dealt with. But if it's a one-off, not letting it get you down. But the second thing that it really raises is loss aversion and how loss aversion really plays into our lives. As human beings, we really focus on the negative things that happen to us instead of the positive things that happen to us. So what that basically means is that if a colleague is really rude to me in a day, I'm going to carry it with me much more. It's going to affect my resilience levels. 
as compared to the increase that I could have got if I internalize the good things that happen. So a colleague giving me a compliment, a friend telling me that I've hit it out, out of the park today. So again, really kind of encouraging people to balance that out, recognizing that as humans, we fo- we over-focus on losses and getting people to kind of reconnect with what went right in their day. And, you know, I'm not a really big journaler, actually. I find it really hard to kind of routinely keep journals. And I think if there's listeners who do keep journals, this is an awesome thing to do, is to write down at the end of each day what actually went right in the day. So not focusing on the losses. Really even putting up the small parts to give yourself the kind of mojo boost from somebody being kind to you and for somebody pointing out that you're doing a good job. If you're like me and you find a hard to journal doing that kind of mentally for five minutes, 10 minutes, where you set your reminder in the phone at the end of the day is again a way to kind of reprogram your narrative so things are going right for you rather than things that are actually going wrong for you. And, you know, I think it's no surprise that, you know, gratitude has been linked to, you know, people who practice gratitude has been linked to a whole host of positive things that are, that have to do with well-being and resilience, resilience is one of them. And it really comes down to the fact that, you know, for one reason or another, and it's probably evolutionary, we just overfocus on losses as individuals. And, I, and I, I've never met somebody who doesn't succumb to loss aversion in some domains of their lives. So putting that structure in place, where at the end of the day, whether it's with pen and paper or whether it's just kind of sitting there mindfully and recounting what's gone right, that can be enough to kind of keep you tipped in the right direction to kind of tackle the next day. Yeah, I can't remember who said it, but some psychologist said that criticism is like Velcro to us. It sticks to us and praise is like Teflon. It just slips right off and we don't hold on to it. So yeah, I love that idea of writing down or thinking about, or even sometimes me and my partner, we talk about what are the good things that have happened in the day when we're having our dinner, just to kind of try to strengthen those positive experiences so that we're, we're able to hold on to them a bit better. And if you have that, I think this is an amazing thing to do. You know, one thing about kind of, you know, these journeys that we take in our careers, there will be ups and downs. And when there's downs, when self-belief is depleted, having kind of a hype buddy can really, really help. So having a hype buddy that equally at the end of each day, or even at the end of each week, if you don't see them daily, where you say, look, this is really what went right for me this week, what went right for you, and having that reciprocal relationship is such a valuable thing to have. I think particularly, you know, during kind of COVID-19 where a lot of our our networks have been a bit depleted because we the people who we have casual encounters with we're not seeing, really strengthening those that are closest to us is very, very important. Is there any final thing that you want to share with people that you'd like people to know? You know, I think when I look out at the kind of books that talk about career building, there's so many of the books that really talk about overhauling your life and how to do it in six months and how to, you know, really change your life. And I think if you've tried one of those books and it hasn't worked for you, do think about your future as more of a medium term expedition. And, you know, when I when I think about medium term, I'm always thinking somewhere between one and five years, which can sound like a scary time away. But when you think about it, time does fly. And the whole idea behind thinking big is doing something you love. So I hope that when you're working for it, you'll be enjoying that too. But really embracing the idea that small things that we do every single day are are, are cumulative and can really lead you to somewhere that's very, very different to where you are today, if that's what you want. Yeah, definitely. I uh, changed career at 25 and it took me three years from starting the training to slowly going part-time in my day job to going full-time. And 
yeah, if, if I was thinking I had to do it in six months, I think it would have been impossible. But I, yeah, it does take, does take time, these things. Your journey for me is a great example of, of what I'm trying to encourage that you did it almost, you know, you said you went to work part time and, and you went, to, it, it, it was a slower, a slower detachment. And I, again, I think if, yeah. if for people who are, are risk averse, that's absolutely perfect. Where can people find out about you? Anything, any sort of websites or social media you want to share with people? Yes. So my Twitter handle is um, Grace Lorden underscore. And I also have a website, which is www.gracelorden.com. So if you're interested in Think Big, do link up with me in one of those places. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Chloe. You have been listening to the Karma You podcast with me, Chloe Bretheridge. Don't forget you can download loads of freebies for anxiety and confidence at my website, karmayou.com. You can also find out about my app and my one-on-one sessions. Please do subscribe to this podcast in the Apple Podcast app. And if you have enjoyed it or found it helpful, please leave me a review. It makes a massive difference to helping the podcast get discovered by other people. And come on over and find me on Instagram. I'm hanging out there every day. You can find me at Chloe Brotheridge. Let me know what you thought of this episode. And please do share it with anyone who might need to hear this today. So I'm sending you loads of love and I hope you have a brilliant week ahead. 